Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide podcast with your hosts, Vanessa Weisbrod and Emily Friedner. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. I have a very special co-host here with me today, Blair Raber. Blair and her husband, Steve, are the founders of our Celiac Program at Children's National, and I'm so excited to have her here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So today's podcast is one that I've been eagerly anticipating for months. There is so much information floating around the World Wide Web about celiac disease, and so much of it is conflicting. I'm talking about things like, does my child really need a biopsy if they have a positive blood test for celiac disease? It seems like such an invasive procedure that they don't really need. Or, what does genetic testing actually mean? And, should doctors across all medical disciplines be routinely screening for celiac disease even if their patients don't have obvious symptoms? To discuss these controversies, I've got two of the top celiac disease physicians in the world in the studio. Dr. Ivor Hill is the director of the Celiac Disease Center and section chief of gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And Dr. Benny Kersner is the medical director of our celiac disease program here at Children's National. Welcome, Dr. Hill and Dr. Kersner. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I want to start out by talking about the biopsy to confirm a celiac disease diagnosis. When I was diagnosed about 15 years ago, there was no question. The biopsy was just the gold standard, and that's what I was told to do. Can you tell our listeners what has changed with the updated guidelines from the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, and why they are recommend, recommending eliminating the biopsy for some patients? You want me to answer that? Sure. So, um, yeah, obviously, uh, doing a biopsy is an invasive procedure. It's also incredibly expensive. So anything that can be done to avoid the biopsy would be nice. Our European colleagues have looked at this with their guidelines, which came out in 2012, and suggested that in some cases it may be possible to forego a biopsy. Specifically, if the child had very typical symptoms of celiac disease, meaning gastrointestinal symptoms such as diarrhea, bloating, pain, weight loss, and they had an elevated TTG, tissue transcontaminase, that was greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal. If you had such a circumstance and you then took a second sample of blood and found that the endometrial antibody was also positive and that they had the correct HLA-DQ types for celiac disease, you could provisionally make a diagnosis of celiac disease, start the child on a gluten-free diet, and providing their symptoms resolved, their numbers returned to normal, you could then, in retrospect, say they definitely had celiac disease. So th they are uh, promoting that uh, widely now. There has been a slight shift recently in people feeling that it may not be necessary to do the second blood test, the endometrial antibody and the HLA, that it's just significant enough to have the elevated uh, tissue transcontaminase. And more and more Europeans are using the non-biopsy diagnosis. I will say that our adult colleagues are totally in disagreement with this across the world, even in Europe, 
they still feel that the biopsy is very important. So that's different from what we're doing. Why do they disagree? Why do they think the biopsy is still important? Um, for a start, many adults, at least 50% of the adults, if you do follow-up biopsies, have persistent villus atrophy. And the villus atrophy really dictates what the long-term adverse health consequences are going to be. If you have persistent villus atrophy, your chances of having adverse health consequences are much greater. So they feel very strongly that they need to be able to have a baseline biopsy and to follow patients up to make sure that they are, in fact, improving based on biopsies, not just on symptoms and tissue trunks examinations. So are the persistent, um, is the persistent villus atrophy because they were potentially missed or undiagnosed for so many years and it got worse and worse, or just of when the disease became so active? That, that's a very good question. I think in the vast majority, those people are probably still being exposed to gluten in the okay. vast majority. But it's identifying them and then putting a plan in place to make sure that they are completely gluten-free or finding out where the hidden sources of gluten are, is what, where the adults are going to try and make sure that they respond completely. Okay. So you mentioned TGG earlier. Uh, what are the other conditions that a patient could have with a highly elevated TTG? So you can get a nonspecific elevation in TTG in other autoimmune conditions, particularly diabetes. You can get it in uh, autoimmune thyroiditis. So it's a nonspecific elevation. Usually it's less than three times upper limit norm, but occasionally it can be even higher. Mm-hmm. And then you can get elevated TTGs in other diseases like Crohn's disease. It's, it's not, again, usually uh, not, not terribly high. Um, it also, very interestingly, there have been a couple of case reports now of children. If you do a TTG at the time that they have a febrile illness, yep. they can have an abnormal TTG. And in one case, I saw a report where it was actually greater than 10 times the abnormal normal. And once the febrile illness was over, it resolved completely. So it's a, a, a nonspecific marker in, in that Obviously, you shouldn't be doing TTGs in febrile children at the time mm-hmm. because it can give you a false positive. Do you have anything you'd like to add, Dr. Kersner? Um, well, it's it's hard to elaborate after Ivor has given you a discourse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you know, but the question gets asked of us very regularly. Every parent queries the need to have the biopsy. So I think there are two things I'd like to say for those who are listening. One is from a technical and risk point of view. That is really not a big deal. It's far less of a deal than I think most people anticipate. I think it's genuinely true to say that, at least in our environment, it's safer to have the biopsy than drive here for it. But uh, (laughs) having said that, uh, I mean, in terms of risk, that's probably true. Um, so, you know, although it's, it, it is, it is a very expensive, it is an anesthetic, it is a difficult environment, there's lots of reasons to hesitate. And that hesitation, Ivor and I were talking about it this morning, we need to respect. Mm-hmm. And I think every individual parent deserves a discussion about the pros and cons, and they differ depending on the extent of the testing and the symptomatology. And there are times that both of us have forgone doing the biopsy. There comes a point where it's appropriate to do that. But having said that, there are lots of things that you're getting from the biopsy. You're not just diagnosing celiac disease. I think you're also having an opportunity to look for alternative causes of pathology. We've been surprised, and it's now well documented, that eosinophilic esophagitis, this allergic 
reaction, sort of think of it like an eczema of the esophagus, if you will, is present in surprisingly large numbers of children who have celiac disease. It has remarkable effects on their diet and their need to alter it. We want that diagnosis. And uh, we are occasionally surprised to find that actually the biopsies are normal, uh, despite the testing. Um, so on balance, um, I think the North American society has wisely decided we're not quite ready to give this up. And I've written about this extensively. So what would you do with a patient that had a high TTG level, you did the biopsy, and it was negative? Where does that leave them? Well, I, I think the first thing I do is tell them to speak to you and, <laughs> and investigate why, <laughs> you know, um, this is so, you know, what sort of diet are they on? Did we? There are a lot of questions to ask. If the, if the level was high and biopsies were negative, where were the biopsies taken? Uh, there is some thought about needing to biopsy the bulb. Uh, which is the very first part of the duodenum, and many times gastroenterologists go past the bulb and take biopsies deeper down. It's a patchy lesion, so occasionally you might pick up areas that are not quite as profoundly involved. The pathological interpretation might not be quite right, and it would be important to sit down with the pathologist and make certain that we're in agreement about the interpretation. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind for me. And, um, you know, things happen. Sometimes we get a lab result that's from the wrong person. Right. <laughs> you, you know, we, we really need to look into that very, very carefully. Would you add anything? Yeah, I, th I think Benny makes some very good points. I think number one, you need to know that those biopsies have been interpreted correctly and that the correct biopsies were taken absolutely. So we're two, at least two from the bulb, at least four from the second part of the duodenum. Were they oriented properly? Were they interpreted properly? If you've done that, um, then you're sitting with a situation where what we call is potential celiac disease. In other words, you've got abnormal antibodies, but you have a normal biopsy. The management of that patient is going to really, really be dictated by what's going on in the... If they're asymptomatic, I probably wouldn't start them on a gluten-free diet. If they had major symptoms, you may consider starting them on a gluten-free diet and monitoring because you've got something you can monitor the symptoms there. So it's... it's, it's on a case-by-case -case basis that you're going to manage those particular children. There is one alternative as well that we've been looking at where you can actually get a tissue transglutaminase stain and stain the biopsies in those cases. And in, in very, very early cases of celiac disease, you get a very characteristic stain of the tissue transglutaminase in the enterocytes right at the tips of the villi, which um, in some studies has shown almost predicts that if you stay on a gluten-free diet within two years, you will have villus atrophy in those cases. But each case is going to have to be on an individual basis, and it can be pretty tricky. So we were talking a little earlier about the anxiety that parents go through subjecting their kids to the, the biopsy. What other ways can you relieve the anxiety of parents so that they know that they're doing the right thing? Well, I think so much depends on you building a relationship from the moment they come through the door. I think truly that maybe is where the art of medicine exists. Um, being able to be cogent, being able to explain in detail, being able to listen carefully, being able to be respectful 
of their feelings. And, and you know, this sounds a little maybe romantic. I don't know how you what we. But I think there's a lot involved in that. And I think we have enormous responsibility when we take a child into this environment uh, to remind ourselves just how frightening and threatening that is. Just as a little anecdote, I remember having my tonsillectomy at age five. And the thing I remember is being wheeled down the corridor to the operating room and looking at all the instruments in the glass cases and thinking, oh my God, what are they going to be doing to me? Uh, you know, and that sensation of fear. And what we can tell them here, and I'm sure Ivor can tell them, this is true at Nationwide as well, we have a staff that's ready to receive them who I think has been brilliantly sensitized, uh, have a wonderful way with children. Uh, we have the means to get them support if they need it, to pre-sedate if it really is necessary, uh, to speak one-to-one -one and eye-to-eye -eye in language that's understood by the child as well as the mother. All of those things, I think, are really what count. And frankly, I think after we've had a reasonable discussion it is the very rare parent who says absolutely not if we if we're convincing enough. I think Benny's put it beautifully. So there are really two things that I think we need to be able to do um, is reassure the parents that it's a relatively safe procedure. The, the the complication rates are extremely low. And then the other thing that's really important is to reassure the parents that the pa the child will have no discomfort whatsoever, that they are under general anesthesia, they are completely comfortable. And so knowing those two things does help a little bit. But again, respecting that they have a, a major concern and, and working with them through that. And uh, there's still some patients who, despite all that, would not want to do it. We'll work with them uh, and try and avoid the biopsy if they really feel very strongly about it. So I know before I worked at Children's National and I was able to actually watch biopsies happen, even for myself, I mean, I had one about... 15 years ago, and I remember being frightened by it because nobody told me what to expect going into it. But having watched many of them now, it's actually a very quick and simple procedure, and I couldn't believe how quickly the doctors were able to be in and out and get exactly what they needed. So for people, for parents who are listening who might really not understand what happens, can you tell them what the process is like once their child would go into the endoscopy room? Sure. Uh, you, you know, in our, in our facility, they would come into the preoperative area. Uh, there's a little bit of a wait, unfortunately, and it's hard to overcome that. And during that time, they will have an interaction with the doctor. The anesthesiologist will come in and discuss precisely what's to be given. Uh, we will give the child to understand how this procedure works. We usually use gas anesthesia to get them asleep. So they don't have to be subjected to an intravenous injection for the IV. Uh, we let them smell, uh, and they can choose the smell, you know, from bubble gum to <laughs> raspberries or whatever that they would prefer to have. Um, maybe I shouldn't be telling you this on the podcast, but sometimes we warn them that at the very end it doesn't smell good at all. It lasts for a really while. Some people think it smells like. Dinosaur farts, <laughs> <laughs> which usually gets them laughing enough to de inhale the gas. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and I think the parent understands that they will be there at the bedside 
part of the process until the child's completely asleep. Uh, at our institution, it's mandatory that the parent wait outside of the operating room uh, for procedures to be done, and they will be brought back to the child before the child's awake so that they're there to comfort them as they come out of the anesthetic. The child's never awake without the parents there. Exactly. And um, we warn the parent that as a child comes out of an anesthetic, they might be a little disoriented, they don't remember any of that, and they should be prepared to, you know, expect this the, the, uh, little fright maybe. And they do very well. And truly, children, as Iva said, absolutely don't remember this procedure. You know, I remember nothing about my biopsy except waking up and my parents telling me that I begged for a Wendy's Frosty for, for hours afterwards. What was Kate like when I, she woke I, up? I, I do go through and, and I the potential complications. Yeah. And there are potential complications. Anytime you put an instrument into the intestine of anyone, you run the risk of making a hole. Happily, I've never done that. It's extraordinarily rare. Uh, it is an anesthetic and we tell them you could you know, there's a risk of arresting respiration, stop breathing, and we have an anesthesiologist with them for every breath and every heartbeat and every breath is monitored with the ability to respond if necessary. Um, we talk about the fact that a small number of children, it's in the order of maybe 1%, will have some discomfort afterwards, and they might report some pain where the biopsies would hold, uh, and that it can be treated usually with something like Tylenol and it will resolve. Um, there is, you're taking biopsies, so there's a risk of bleeding. And over 30 years, we've had three children who developed a bruise beneath the biopsies to the point that for two or three days they had to be intravenously fed. Those children were very ill to start with, they were in the ICU, they were not the characteristic profile of the child with celiac disease that we see, but we go through that carefully and we make sure that the parent has an opportunity to discuss each of those potential risks. Blair, as a parent, can you talk about the experience when Kate had her biopsy? So she had her biopsy 10 years ago, and I really don't remember much about it, which um, I think was probably a, a good thing because it meant that, you know, she didn't really get confused. Um, I, I think it was just very, very easy for us. And you felt good that you had a confirmed diagnosis? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We, I, I felt it was very important to, to get that definitive answer. Great. Just so that we knew exactly what we were working with. So let's move on to talk about genetic testing. To start off, Dr. Hill, can you explain what the genetic test tells us about the likelihood for a person developing celiac disease? Sure. So, um... There are two genes known as human leukocyte antigen genes, HLA genes, and specifically the one that we look at, uh, the ones we look at for celiac disease are the HLA DQ2 and DQ8. So about 95% of people who have celiac disease have the markers for the HLA DQ2, and the rest virtually all have the markers for HLA DQ8. Unfortunately, those markers are also found in 40% of the general population. So only 3% of those people who have HLA-DQ2 or DQ8 will go on to develop celiac disease, meaning the vast majority who still have those genes won't necessarily develop celiac disease. 
So it's, 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 a, it's a marker that tells you you cannot have celiac disease unless you have those genes. If you don't have those genes, then your chance of having celiac disease are virtually null. So the only time that test is useful to you clinically is if they are negative. You cannot interpret a, a positive test as meaning you're going to have celiac disease. So we don't recommend that, that, that people use it to test for celiac disease. It doesn't really help you at all. So when is the genetic test particularly useful? We use it in when we've got difficult cases. So an example might be a patient who's already been put on a gluten-free diet before they come to you, and they've been on the gluten-free diet for some time. Your serological tests may be of no help to you at all at that stage. To give you a scenario, a child has had some symptoms. Somebody's put them on a gluten-free diet without testing them. They've been on the diet for several months, and then they come to you and say, well, do I have celiac disease? At that stage, it's no good doing a serological test. Oh, really, it's no good doing a biopsy. Chances are they've all healed. So one way to get around that is you might say, okay, well, let's do the HLA test. If the HLA tests were negative, you could say that they didn't have celiac disease. If they're positive, you're back to square one with saying, well, now we've got to sort this out another way. It may also be useful if you've got a discrepancy between your serology and your biopsies. If there's some sort of the one doesn't gel with the other, so you might run the HLA test to see if it's positive or negative in that case. So they're very select cases where we might use it, but not just as a general screening tool. It really, it's expensive and it doesn't really tell you much in the general population. And if you get a negative genetic test, does it always mean that the child will always be negative for celiac disease? Or yes, so are there examples? You're right. So virtually, what you need to know about the test is you can't just ask for the HLA DQ2 or the DQ8. They have two alleles that make up these two um, HLA types. And even having only one allele, in other words, half of the molecule, still puts you at risk. So the lab that does the test should be looking at the alleles and making sure that you're seeing all the alleles. And if even there's one positive, it still means that your risk is there, but very much lower. So um, if they're completely absent, your chance of having celiac disease are virtually null, and you will never get celiac disease. So let's talk about a real-life example. Let's say a family has a four-year-old child who was recently diagnosed with celiac, biopsy confirmed, of course. The child has two older siblings. Both parents and siblings get screened for celiac disease with the TTG tests, and all are negative. Should all of these family members also get the genetic test to see if they are susceptible for developing celiac in the future, or should they just wait to see if symptoms begin and then request a new blood test for the TTG levels? So this is a good question. Um, for a start, if you, if you consider that if you've got a family member with celiac disease, putting this in perspective, if you've got a family, a member with, uh, family member with celiac disease, chances are those HLA types are going to be present in many of the family members. So there's a very good chance it's going to be positive. If you ran the HLA test and it was negative, you could certainly say you never have to test those individuals, but it's going to be a small number that are going to be negative. So assuming that most of them are still positive, you've got negative tests initially, what do you do with those individuals? There's two uh, schools of thought here. Some say, well, you should retest them every three to five years, as long as they stay completely asymptomatic. And, but the trouble is, when do you stop? We just don't know. Some people say once you've gone through adolescence, then chances are you're going to have very little. There's no guarantee that you won't go on to develop celiac disease if your HLA types are positive. The other school says, be aware of the fact that you're at increased risk. And as soon as you get any symptoms, consider testing. So it's a more pragmatic type approach. So don't necessarily test if you're completely asymptomatic or repeat testing, but if you develop any symptoms, consider testing again. 
So let's move on to discuss screening of patients across different medical disciplines, um, particularly those patients who are asymptomatic. So I want to talk about patients with type 1 diabetes and autoimmune thyroid disease. Should everyone with these conditions automatically get screened for celiac disease, or should there be symptoms? Again, it's a, there's two schools of thought here. So <laughs> if, you, if you look at our adult colleagues, they're, again, a little bit more pragmatic. So the problem is, if you are totally asymptomatic and you have a positive test and you have a biopsy which shows some changes, there's no evidence that putting that individual on a gluten-free diet in the short term has any benefits. There's also um, some data out there showing that individuals who are identified purely on the basis of screening and put on a, on a gluten-free diet don't perceive a benefit, and therefore by a year out, most of them aren't even following the gluten-free diet again. So you haven't really achieved a lot. So there are these two schools of thought. The pediatric people have always been very... Um, adamant that you should screen everybody, even if they're completely asymptomatic. Given the scenario that I say we don't have any evidence that screening, uh, treating is beneficial. Our adult colleagues have been a little bit more pragmatic again and said, no, again, because there's no evidence that treating somebody who's totally asymptomatic is beneficial, rather you should be aware that they'd increase risk and screen them if they ever develop a symptom. So my approach is really to sit and talk to the parents, give them both sides of the story, and try and see where they're coming from. There are some families who really want everybody screened. We'll help them. There are some families that feel very comfortable. They don't want to necessarily put the other children on a gluten-free diet if they don't need it. And so we'll just be stay in touch with them and make sure that if they ever develop a symptom, we'll test them at that stage. Yeah, it is a difficult dilemma. And um, I find myself actually swinging towards screening more regularly rather than away from it. And the sort of thing that's persuaded me somewhat is the identification of features of the disease in patients who have been screened routinely, um, you, you know, and found to already have bone changes long before they actually express other elements of the illness. and. That sort of thing worries me. So if you have a diabetic child and you, there's that right at the outset, all of those who had um, positive tissue transglutaminases have bone scans done. There's a higher incidence of bone issues amongst those children that resolve on the gluten-free diet and left unresolved, you know, you worry, what does it mean down the road? But I think the truth of it is for me that we don't have the answers. And I think I've approach is absolutely right. I, I do think it's essential that you sit with the patient and you don't offer a dogmatic statement that says, you know, you're asymptomatic, doesn't matter, you're, every family member needs to be screened because it could be there somewhere and that's absolute, it's not absolute. And there are downsides to being on a gluten-free diet that are not only to do with the expense uh, you know, the challenge of doing it appropriately, but we're now having emerging concerns about increased incidence of heart disease, um, maybe vitamin depletion. There are limits to the benefits of a gluten-free diet as well. It's not as if, and years ago, I would say, oh, it's a great diet, you know, it's a little difficult, but it's not going to hurt you. It isn't quite so clean anymore. So you have to have a very careful discussion. If I could just add one thing there, so specifically the diabetics, 
Um, our endocrinologists are very aggressive at screening them and screening them repeatedly. And we get a number of cases sent to us that have a minimally elevated TTG. So, as I said, it can be a non-specific response in diabetics. So what I've adopted the attitude that if the TTG is less than three times the upper limit of normal and the child is complete asymptomatic, I will test them for the endomesial antibody first before making any decisions. If the endomesial antibody is negative, it almost predicts you will have a normal biopsy. And then we'll just follow those children. Many of them, the, the TTG disappears if they remain asymptomatic and it goes back in. So I think the diabetics are a very specific group that do don't necessarily rush in and do a biopsy just because you've got an elevated TTG in the first instance. You need to make sure that it's just a, it's not a non-specific response that's going to resolve. That's really interesting. So I want to flip the situation around. Should patients with celiac automatically be screened for other autoimmune diseases? Yes. Specific, only one, one in particular. And again, this comes from John Snyder's work, which I thought was really helpful in his best practices. The one condition that they are advocating screening for is thyroid disease, hypothyroidism, autoimmune hypothyroiditis. So um, we've adopted a, a um, we've developed a care index for our patients, and we will screen them annually for the uh, thyroid um, test. We're looking specifically at the TSH, the um, thyroid stimulating hormone, and if it's elevated, then taking it further from there. About three to five percent of patients are thought to go on to develop hypothyroidism where people have celiac disease, so that's become an annual screen of ours now. So if they don't have it at diagnosis, it's still possible for them, even on a gluten-free diet, to develop it later? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Just to come to the other one, the diabetics fascinate me. So I have only ever seen one patient who was diagnosed with celiac disease first and then went on to develop diabetes. I've never understood this. I don't know why. So I don't routinely screen for diabetes in patients because this only happened once. It's always the other way around. It's people who have diabetes and are then found to have celiac disease. I don't understand why. It fascinates me, as I said, but I don't think that's something we should routinely be screening for. Got it. So, Benny, this wasn't on our list of questions that we had talked about in advance, but right. I'm curious if you want to add anything about kids with POTS and celiac disease. I know we've seen an increasing number in right. our clinics. Right. I, I've been surprised by the number of children, particularly older children, mm -hmm. who have features of so-called paradoxical orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, just to be complete. Uh, these are children who, uh, these are people who don't have the autonomic nervous system respond appropriately and characteristically, for instance, when they stand up suddenly blood is not redirected to the brain mm -hmm. and they get dizzy and they have a lot of other autonomic nervous system dysfunction. Some of it can be quite disabling. Uh, it might range from cold extremities to very sweaty hands uh, to a sort of fog state uh, and uh, associated with considerable anxiety in many. It's not a diagnosis to bandy around because if you go into the literature and look it up, uh, you know, it can be very serious. And yet, on the other hand, milder forms of it exist, and it can be counted quite readily or reasonably by paying attention to appropriate fluid intake and salt intake. And um, it's now become part of our routine questioning at follow-up visits for patients with uh, celiac disease. And as I've said, we're surprised at the numbers 
that are coming up as positive. If patients are very compliant with their gluten-free diet, is there a better chance of not developing a related condition later, or does it not matter? You mean the other autoimmune conditions? Correct. No, I don't think that there's any guarantee that you won't. There was a very good study, particularly looking at the thyroid disease, showing that a third of patients already had autoimmune thyroiditis prior to diagnosis, but the other two-thirds went on to develop it after diagnosis, despite being on a strict gluten-free diet. So there's no guarantee that it's going to stop that. So then we shouldn't always say that if you stick to a gluten-free diet, you'll prevent the development of, of these conditions because it doesn't necessarily matter. So that, that came about, uh, there was a study that was published by Ventura from Italy many years ago that looked at two groups of patients, those who were diagnosed in childhood and those who were diagnosed in adulthood, and then over many years, who you know, how many of them developed autoimmune disease, and they found that the, the adult went on to have more autoimmune diseases, and therefore their theory was that if you were gluten-free for, a, for a, a longer period of time, or if you were diagnosed early, you would prevent these. It was very exciting. We really thought we had something there, but subsequent studies have come out that shown that that's not true, so I don't think uh, that holds any water anymore. I don't think there's anything. Very interesting. Well, I think the real takeaway today, Blair, is that it's really important to have a good relationship with your doctor, and that across all three of these issues that we've discussed, it's really case-specific and that you really need to, to spend that time talking about your history and just interacting with your doctor to make sure you feel prepared for the biopsy, you understand it, and just know the process going forward for, for managing the disease. Absolutely, and I think um, knowledge is power. So I encourage everyone to ask a lot of questions, bring a laundry list of questions to your doctor to to ask and feel confident in in whatever the next course of um, action is. Definitely. Well, we're out of time for today's podcast. I want to thank Dr. Hill and Dr. Kersner for joining us to shed light on these very important controversies in celiac disease. This was such wonderful information that I know will be very helpful to all of our listeners. And I hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast, and we will talk to you again next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.